Welcome to our Revelation study. This is our last study. Um, given that it's Revelation, I'm just going to ask that no one ask any questions tonight. Because I probably there's a 97% chance I will not know the answer. Nor will anybody else. Or you'll have 18 different possible answers because of all the imagery and metaphors and craziness. But before we pray, tonight's kind of a cool night. Because on, Jan- on July 18th, 2007, we started the endeavor of teaching through the entire Bible. July 18th, 2007. Nine years and ten months ago, so two months shy of a decade, is when we started this study. We had 81 studies in Genesis, 46 studies in Exodus, because it's so foundational to the rest of Scripture. Then we got to Leviticus. No one wanted to spend a lot of time in that, so we started moving faster And did 96 studies for the rest, making this our last one, our 223rd Wednesday night Bible study, teaching through the the Bible. The cool thing is, all that's online. So you have a resource online of 223, whenever you want to sit and listen to like 10, 15 at a time, 223 Bible studies, starting on Genesis and going through Revelation. There is a certain, and we took a break to go through spiritual disciplines and living by the book during that time. So those were the two breaks we took, but the rest was just plowing through. There is a bit of humor in that we are going to study Revelation for the last one. We're going to cover all of Revelation in 47 minutes from this point. And um, the guarantee that I can make you tonight is that we are ending with a study um, that's very fitting, obviously, um, but also will likely leave you with way more questions than you have answers when you come away with it, because it is just that kind of book. So I'm excited to have our 223rd Bible study uh, and, and be able to put a, put a bow on this thing and probably be able to start over and learn all new things if we really wanted to next week. Um, but uh, let's pray and we'll get to it. Lord, you are very, very good. What a privilege and blessing it is in this body to be able to have taught through all of Scripture. Lord, it's also a privilege and an honor to know that in the 223 studies uh, that were taught and the thousands of hours that went into that teaching, to know that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface and certainly haven't plumbed the depths of your word. It's sweet and humbling to come to this last study and to know that as encouraging as it has been, as edifying as it has been, as, as many details as we have gleaned and as many lessons as we've learned and as many stories as we've heard and as many beautiful realities that we have observed about our great God who is full of glory, that there's just still so much more. But Lord, it was a, it was a good use of a decade, and I'm really, really thankful for that. We do pray tonight that you would guide our time through this last study uh, we confess uh, ahead of time that there, there's a lot of very confusing, um, mysterious things in the book of Revelation. So we humble ourselves before you tonight and ask that you would guide our time. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have gone through, we started in Galatians is where we were at the beginning of this semester. And then we went through all of the pastoral epistles, uh, shorter letters, and tonight, last week we were in Jude, which was about having faith in faithless times, and brings us to Revelation, which the title is, What Are We Waiting For? What Are We Waiting For? 
Uh, I want to give you a heads up before we dig into this that our children are going to be celebrating that this is the last Wednesday. And so I'm guessing that in very few minutes, it's going to get really loud right outside. Um, I told them to not, let, not throw balls against the walls outside and, and all that, and they said no problem, but then they did plug a bounce house into that plug right there. So I'm guessing that it's going to get loud, so we just have to be, uh, be so driven that we can just get over that. So uh, we're, we're in Revelation, and the theme tonight is what are we waiting for? So in, in, uh, in taking a risk, I'll ask this question. What is the first thought that comes to mind when you think about a Revelation Bible study? Or when you just think about studying Revelation, what, what are the first thoughts, the questions, the observations that you already have, having not done the study yet? About end times, very good. There is judgment. What else? There are many different views on what in the world is going on in some of these things. What else? It was written to people that probably weren't as confused as we are. Maybe close in some areas, but not as much as we are. It certainly made more sense to John than it will to us. We can guarantee that. What else? Yeah. Yeah, people want to know the timeline. The weird thing about the timeline here is that you can't watch the timeline because in this chapter, this happens with this many people, and then in this chapter, it's happened with more people, but it, it looks like it happened earlier in this chapter than in the earlier chapter. And so what you actually have to watch in Revelation, instead of the timeline, you have to watch the intensity of the things happening. So as things ratchet up, you know you're moving forward in time, but you're moving forward in time within a vision, we just entered the twilight zone. We're, that was, we just did the, the whole matrix thing. And so, um, so you're moving forward in time, but it's moving forward in time within this vision that John's having uh, on the, the whole island of uh, Patmos thing, which we'll, we'll come to some of that here in, in a bit. So um, right out of the gate, just with the few things y'all shared, um, we need to acknowledge that Revelation is famously confusing, famously confusing. Uh, Dever states uh, in his introduction, you will find dragons, angels, beasts, locusts with human faces, scenes set in heaven, and all sorts of other images that you cannot imagine. And he makes a really good point that I think just kind of sets the pace for what we're doing in this study and how we're approaching the study. He says, some of the things will be very difficult, if not impossible, to understand. Other things, however are not that hard to understand. And those are the important things in the book. So when we're approaching, when we're trying to figure out how do we tackle Revelation in this short sort of overview study, one of the, one of the things we can land on is that there's lots of hard stuff, but on the stuff that's not as hard to understand, that's the more important stuff because it, it gives us some direction and some insight that we wouldn't otherwise have. So there's four images that we're going to consider tonight. Four images, four arresting images that John sees in the image that he has given. And we'll get to in just a minute where he was and what was happening um, when he had this 
image that came through a vision. But there's four images. And the first image that we're going to consider is of the throne. The first image is the throne. So look at chapter 4, verse 2, through the first part of 3. It says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. That's it. That, that's all we have right now for who is on the throne. We'll come back to more later. But as we kick this off and we see what's going on, we see these letters to these churches, which you could spend five years just studying the letters to the churches. There's so much good stuff in there. But when we're trying to wrap our heads around this vision and what's important and what can we know, we know that there is a throne. So the one on the throne is said, it says at once, I was in the spirit and behold a throne in heaven with one seated. So we know there's a throne and there's someone on the throne. Not much is said other than the fact that they have extraordinary appearance. So that's kind of a starting point. The next thing that we see about the throne is the scene around the throne. I'm going to read this aloud. The second part of three, it said he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around them and within all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now is that easy for everyone to picture in your heads? No. None of y'all are sitting there, yeah, oh yeah. That's, that's easy to picture. That is very Difficult to picture. So I just read it out loud. Without look, what, what were the things that stuck out? What's going on around the throne? Do what? All the eyes. Anyone creeped out by the eyes? I'm a little creeped out by the eyes. What else? Lightning. Fire. A rainbow. But not just any rainbow. What does this rainbow look like? An emerald. An emerald rainbow. Has anyone ever seen one of those? No, you haven't. What else? Four creatures. Normal creatures? Lots of wings, lots of eyes. What else? All the thrones around the throne. How many? 24. Why? Because there were 24 elders. And what do the elders have on their heads? Crowns. And what were they doing? At this point, they're just sitting. It's a trick question. No one, no one jumped on it. It was good. So, everything 
that we just talked about is not the main point. That's what's hard about Revelation. We, I, I read it out loud. It's weird. And without looking back, we were able to, to sort of pare it back, all the crazy stuff that was happening around the throne. But none of what we just said is the main thing that was happening around the throne. The throne room is a throne room to end all throne rooms, and the king sitting on the throne is quite literally the king to end all kings. That's who dwells in this place. There are magnificent beings who are given over to worship of the one on the throne. At the end it says, day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The purpose again and again that we see, the purpose again and again throughout Revelation, throughout this weird section with these weird characters and creatures and eyes and wings and emerald rainbows. I mean, it sounds like an acid trip. If we're honest, that's what it sounds like. It sounds crazy. It sounds like like a Pink Floyd album with black lights and weird colors that you're not used to seeing when you're not stoned. This is, seriously, that's what this sounds like. And I haven't been there in that place. I'm just imagining. I'm imagining that's what it must be like. So, this is, there's all this stuff going on, but the main thing with the purpose again and again is to draw our attention back to the one who's on the throne. All that was said, and the whole point is that all of them are worshiping without ceasing the one who is on the throne. So we see one on the throne, we see the scene around the throne where everything going on is pointing back to the one who's on the throne. Now let's look at the action around the throne. Look at 5-1. So this is pretty intense. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, it kind of sounds, I don't know, I picture like Wizard of Oz when everyone's coming in and, you know, there's colors everywhere and there's weird stuff going on. It's kind of this, this, like you can almost see it like a movie with this opening scene with this throne and this stuff going on around the throne and then this happens. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So what we see is in the right hand of the one who's on the throne, there's a scroll. It has seven seals. It's apparently very important because it needs to be opened, but there's no one who can open it. So we don't know what's in it yet. We don't know why it's important, but we know that it is important. That's what we know from the, at this point. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So what is the thing that's keeping the scroll from being opened? Someone to open it. And why is there no one who can open it? There's no one qualified. Yeah, there's a lack of worthiness all throughout the earth, over the earth, under the earth. There is not one who's worthy to open this scroll, which is apparently important, and we don't know why yet, but we're going to find out. And one of the elders, so there's these 24 elders, one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll 
and its seven seals. So here's the action around the throne. Dever notes that the scroll seems to be the document upon which the rest of history is written out. The scroll seems to be the document on which the rest of history is written out. It contains decrees and judgments of the sovereign. And he uses the word heretofore, which I think is a funny word. Heretofore sealed so that no one could see it. So it is sealed with seven seals in a way that no one could see what was going to play out, the judgments and the decrees for the rest of history. God is on his throne. And he is sovereign, not only over his throne, but over all of history. He executes his decrees through whatever is on this scroll. Okay? So God is sovereign over everything. He's on his throne. He has this scroll. And he is the one who has the power to exercise and execute his decrees through what's on the scroll. So what we see here as we're reading through this, is that the one on the throne alone deserves worship and trust. So worship and trust are main themes here as we're looking at this scene. The one who's on the throne deserves worship, and the one on the throne can be trusted. Um, It's interesting during this time. So John was in exile. Does anyone know why? Anyone want to guess why John was in exile? Because he's a Christian. And Christians don't do things that uh, power-hungry emperors tell them to do. And sometimes they die because of it, and sometimes they are exiled because of it. So in this setting where John is seeing this vision, the um, emperor Domitian of Rome was the emperor of Rome at the time. And he required... Now, this gives you an idea of what was going on. He required that during the uh, triumphal processions, that people would greet him with the phrase, you are worthy. So that's Emperor Domitian. Imagine if like, I stood by the door every Wednesday night before we start and said, all right, as you guys come in, just, just as a thing, I just want you to say, you are worthy. And John, being a follower of Christ, says, I'll have none of that. No. And so he is exiled. So what, what do you think, if John was exiled, it appears, for refusing to comply to Emperor Domitian's required phrase, you are worthy, to be used as an act of worship so that people would worship him as the one who is trustworthy and the one who is in power, what do you think it did to John when in this vision he saw all this activity and one on the throne, the one true God, and everyone saying, you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy. You alone are worthy. What would that have done to John? Yeah, yeah. It would have encouraged him that he made the right choice. It would have encouraged him to see, man, no matter how many emperor Domitians require people to say, you are worthy to him, 
It, they're not worthy. No matter how many people say it, it, it you, a million people can say it, and that man is no more worthy than he was when the first person said it. But the one who is always worthy is the one who's seated on the throne. And when John is caught up in this vision and seeing what's going on, you, we have to know it must have been a great, great encouragement for him to see the 24 elders and these creepy-eyed creatures and wings everywhere just looking at the throne. You alone, you are worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What a comfort it must have been for him. So the first image that we have is the image of a throne. The second image is the image of a storm. Um, look at 8.5. I'm just going to read a couple verses. 8.5, 11.19, and 16.18. 8.5 says, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightnings, and an earthquake. And in 1119, we see then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And look at 16:18. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since there was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. This is after what's known as the seventh bull, which is the last bull, which means there were how many bulls before that? Very good. We are all trying. You guys know Revelation. This is awesome. So, what we're seeing there is what I mentioned earlier, on that you can't watch a timeline in Revelation. You have to watch levels of intensity. And when the levels of intensity reach their peak, you know that we're at a point of completion in whatever's being spoken about. So what we see here is this, this image of the storm, you know, lightning, thunder, hail, all that, peals of thunder, all that. The seals come first because the Lamb must open the seals of God's decrees of judgment upon creation. So the lamb, or the lion, sorry, spoiler alert, the lion's the lamb, we'll get to that in a minute, <laughs> but the lion, who would open the seals, has to be there to open the seven seals, and then what's on the scroll is the way that God will execute his decrees and his judgment upon creation, and then there's trumpets that sound every time, so the sounding trumpets announce God's decrees over creation. Finally, the seven bulls pour his judgment out upon creation. Okay, so we all tracking? We tracking? It's, it's, it's just, what's going on right here? Just one word, what's happening? Judgment. judgment. Yes, we're talking about judgment. It's judgment through the seals being broken, the scroll being read, the... Um, trumpets sounding, announcing God's decrees on creation through the scroll. It's red, the trumpets sound, and then there's seven bowls full of judgment that are poured out after the sounding of each trumpet upon creation. The climax of each one of those seven processions, the, the seal, the judgment, the trumpet, the bowl, number two, seal two, Judgment proclaimed, trumpet, bowl of judgment poured out. So, do you see what's happening? It happens in incrementing ways till we get to the seventh bowl. And then at the end of each bowl is a big storm. 
thunder, lightning, hail. So the climax of each is a storm. So important imagery in, in Revelation, the first is a throne, the second is a storm. So what is this storm? First, the storm represents the nature of God's judgment. It will be presented in crescendoing, like getting louder, unerring procession, increasing in severity, like I just pointed out. Bowl one is big, bowl two is bigger, bowl three is bigger, and after each one, the storm gets a little bit bigger. This is the nature of God's judgment as it's being poured out. Look at 16.3. 16.3 says, The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. Every living thing died that was in the sea. But then if you go back to 6.12, you see... When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, the stars in the sky fell to the earth as trees sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. You're seeing nature wrapped up. This is the nature of God's judgment. And then in 1617, it says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon, the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. We see God's judgment being poured out. Why is this a good reminder? When we see the nature of God's judgment coming with, with absolute certainty, why, how does that help us when we're observing a bunch of injustices? You ever observed, observed an injustice you can't do anything about? Like, I, I love to think, oh, I can do, I'll do something. I'm going to do something about that injustice. I hate injustice. I hate it when you see someone get the, uh, the wrong of a deal or, or get you know, treated unfairly or get picked on or whatever it might be. Have you ever been on, in a moment where you're seeing injustice and you can't do anything about it? I watched on the news this week a young teenage kid foolish as foolish gets, body slammed an elderly woman and threw her in the pool with her little dog that was on a leash. And I mean, you see an image like that, and I was like, oh, like you, I, that is, that should not, an old lady was body slammed by a punk. That, that's terrible. And people around her doing nothing. What an injustice. That's terrible. It's hard to watch. It makes your stomach turn. But then there's things that happen where there's these injustices, and, and they keep happening. If you read through the Psalms, one of the, one of the things that burdens the heart of the psalmist is this reality of, man, sometimes it feels like the good people aren't flourishing and the bad people are. And it's confusing because they know God's promises, and they want to go back to them, and they want to cling to them. So when we see injustices, we're not allowed to hold grudges. 
We're not even allowed to take vengeance. Like when I saw that lady get body slammed, my first thought was, vengeance, vengeance. Someone pick that guy up and drop him on his head. Somebody do something. No one's doing anything. And, and it, was, it wasn't, you know, someone defend her. I mean, my mind went to vengeance, 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 but we're not allowed to seek vengeance. It says in Romans, you're not to seek vengeance, for vengeance belongs to the Lord. So when you see these injustices, there's, when we, it's really helpful for us as believers to remember the nature of God's judgment and how utterly guaranteed it is. When you see things happening and you're like, man, it keeps happening. I don't understand why people are flourishing. There was a child pornography ring that was busted recently, like three or 400 kids. I mean, just, is there anything more evil? Like, can you, can you imagine anything more evil than that? And you see those people were flourishing, living in big houses, driving around in nice cars. I mean, how many, how many years did they benefit from the plight of, of poor children who were exposed to, to unheard of vile things? And you see that and you're like, why do things like that? Why does that keep happening? Why, why do bad people flourish? How does that work? Why are these injustices continuing? It sounds like Habakkuk. When Habakkuk was there, remember when Habakkuk said at the beginning of, of that, that book that he said, God, why do you sit idle while these injustices happen? That is a reality for us. That is a reality where, where it feels like things are not as they should be. And the reason is, is because things are not as they should be. But the encouragement we have from Revelation is things will be as they should be. No injustice will go unpunished. God will either give grace and mercy and the blood of his son will perfectly cover every injustice or God will execute his justice on the injustice and they will pay with his wrath eternally. That was an encouragement to John and it should be an encouragement to us. There are times where you can say, okay, this is a thing. I, I can't... There's just, I can't do anything about this. This is out of my hands. I don't know what to do here. And there, there, are, there, should, there will be many times in your life where you have to entrust yourself unto the Lord or entrust a situation to the Lord or entrust a person to the Lord, knowing that God will either bring them to repentance and the blood of Christ will cover their sins or God will judge them eternally for the injustice that they have done. That's a comfort for God's people because it's a reality for God's people because it's one of God's promises. The nature of his judgment, which goes hand in hand with what I've already mentioned, the certainty of his judgment, 1118 again says, the nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. No power on earth can hinder, prevent, or delay God's judgment. So we see the nature of God's judgment, we see the certainty of God's judgment, we see the finality of God's judgment. In 11.15 it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There is no appeal from God's judgment at that moment. There is no appeal to be made for God's judgment. It is final, and there is horror in God's judgment. Look at 6.15. The nature of God's judgment, the certainty of God's judgment, the finality of God's judgment. And then look at 6.15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in caves 
and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These people are so overwhelmed with the judgment that's coming from the one who's on the throne that they're going into the mountains and saying, dear mountain, please fall on me and crush me. Huge boulder, put me out of my misery, lest I see the face of the one who is judging me. So you see this thing. There's a desire to see the face of God when you're faithful. But when you're unfaithful and there is injustice and you're unrepentant, there is a lack of desire, in fact, a horror that comes with the idea of seeing his face. And finally, there's a rightness of God's judgment. Look at 11.16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. There is a rightness in God's judgment, which is all indicated and represented and illustrated by this image of a storm. So we have the image of the throne. We have the image of a, of a storm. And then third, we have an image of a lamb. I, I already did the spoiler alert on this. But the first thing is the person of the lamb. We're going to look at the person of the lamb and the work of the lamb. Look at 5.5. Five. Five five says, and one of the elders, was what we read early, one of the elders said to me, weep no more. So God on the throne is holding this scroll with the seven seals that has to be opened for the rain to, to for the earth to end and the new heavens and new earth to begin and the reign of God to be final for eternity. And one of the elders said to John, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that we can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then it goes on to say, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. So he says, Behold, there's a lion. And then he looks over at a lion and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a phenomenal moment. Why? What's going on here? What are we seeing? I mean, just a phenomenal moment. Worship. Why? And, and what, what's beginning the rain? I mean, I mean, try to picture this as a movie. I mean, we see enough movies. Let's use it for some good, right? So, the, the, I mean, imagine. Look at the lion who's going to open the scroll and break the seven seals, and you look over and you see a bloody lamb 
with seven horns and seven eyes. So the picture that God wants you to have of Jesus in this moment through the vision of John while he's in his exile is a slain lamb identified as a lion who has seven horns and seven eyes. Seven horns and seven eyes are a picture of what? Perfect what and perfect what? What do y'all think? What do you think seven horns represent? Perfect what? Imagine what a horn does. Power, yes. I'm sorry. Did I scare you? I love this part. So perfect power and what might the eyes be? Sight, which if you see things properly, you are full of what? Wisdom. So this is a picture of the lamb who was slain with perfect power and perfect wisdom taking the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So the one seated on the throne, God, who's been worshipped by these 24 elders, has this scroll, the slain lamb, seven horns, seven eyes, comes up, takes the scroll from his hand. I mean, can you imagine the anticipation in this moment of everyone being like, he's going to open the scroll because when he opens the scroll, God reigns forever. New heavens, new earth. Old earth gone. Old heavens gone. The sea changes. The mountains are lowered. Things get crazy. And he's, he's going to open the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are what? The prayers of the saints. So what does that mean? Prayers are an offering. What else does it mean? They're heard. What else does it mean? Incense. God likes them. They're pleasing aroma to God. That means in this moment that is more amazing than any moment we've, we've seen in history thus far. I mean, this is the... I mean, obviously, the cross was a pretty major thing. The resurrection, a pretty major thing. Here, what the cross and resurrection led to, we are getting there. And in that moment where Jesus is taking this scroll and opening it up, in that moment, your prayers matter. The prayers of the saints matter. If you ever are, are, are discouraged in your prayers and you're discouraging... Is this going anywhere? Just imagine it going to a golden bowl that's going to be poured out by, these, by the elders in the moment that Jesus opens the scroll. It matters. He accomplishes things through the prayers of his people. Prayers, the reality of prayer in Scripture is that there are things you do not have because you have not prayed rightly, and there are things that you will only have if you pray rightly for them. You have not because you ask not. That's a reality. So prayer isn't a way for us to change the will of God, but it's certainly a way apparently here in which God fulfills his will. It's a way in which we're brought into line with what God's plan is, and God uses us, and somehow the prayers of the saints matter, and they sang a new song. No one had sung this song before. This is the first time. This is like the debut, the, 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 when people release an album. This is like the album release moment here of all these elders. For the first time, 
The words were sung, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. If you don't know what's on the scroll, it doesn't matter. But if you do, this is a significant moment for you were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests, a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. So the person of the lamb is amazing. The work of the lamb just is amazing. What we just saw, what, what, what did the lamb do? What did the lamb do? Took the scroll and did what? Opened it. Here we see in 7-9, it says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If you go down to 714, it says, I said to him, Sir, you know. Okay, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? So, just to be clear, Revelation is so confusing that even one of the elders who's a part of the vision has some questions in the middle of what's going on. Okay, do we see that? Can we enjoy that together? One of the elders, one of the 24. Like, you made it into the big 24, and even this guy's being like, okay, the dude's in the white robes. What's, what's happening here? Uh, One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, which that's the revelation answer. (laughs) You know, you know, you know who they are. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Because of this lamb, all of God's people will be safe. Right before this, there's this section that mentions the 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes times 1,000. And so some people take that to mean so only 144,000 people are actually going to ever be saved. That is a stupid interpretation of this piece of scripture. This picture of 12 tribes with 12,000 in each tribe times 1,000 with, I mean, you've got this picture of completeness is what's going on here. So because of this lamb, all of God's people will be saved. So you have the 144,000, and it's saying all of them. All, and not 143, 999 made it through this whole crazy ordeal. All of them were saved. 144,000 are mentioned signifying completeness. None of God's people have been left out. All of God's chosen ones are sealed and protected from God's wrath. The lamb keeps those whom he purchased with his blood. There's a really encouraging reality here. The really encouraging reality for you at the end of the school year when everyone's tired and worn out is nothing that troubles you today will trouble you forever. That's a really good thing to glean from the Revelation study. Nothing that troubles you today will trouble you forever. I know for a fact that some of y'all have had really bad weeks so far. And it's only Wednesday. But nothing that troubles you today will trouble you forever. It goes on in 7.15 and says, 
Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I challenge you to sit with those verses for 30 minutes tonight before you go to bed. And just think about what it's going to be like for all of that to come true for every single one of God's people. Do it for 10 minutes. I mean, everyone can carve out 10 minutes and just sit with that reality. That is what happens to every single one of God's children, not one of them lost. The things that trouble you today will not trouble you forever. So we have the picture of, what was the first image? What? The throne? What was the second image? Storm? What was the third image? Anyone want to guess what the fourth image is? No, that's after the fourth image. But you're right. We do only have five minutes left. Thank you for the reminder. The city. So there's three things that are indicative of the city that's mentioned here. Look at 21, 1 through 4. This is a a little bit of what we actually just read in those previous verses. But in 21, 1 through 4, it says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So in case you haven't caught on, there will be no deep sea fishing in heaven. Because there will be no sea in heaven. Not an important point, but an interesting one nonetheless. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So I saw a holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We got some, we got some mixed metaphor going on here. Prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The first thing about the city is that it is a city of good times. A city of good times. And that can sound so shallow, like, I just want a city of good times. No, you, that's what you better be hopeful for because that's what you're going to get. You're not going to get a city with turmoil and bad times and frustration and anger and heartache and death and confusion. You're going to get one where all those things are gone. It's going to be a city of the best times you could ever imagine and then some. Death will be replaced by life. Night will be replaced by day. If you go on to read through these verses, corruption will be replaced by purity So there's no more night, there's day, there's no more corruption, there's purity, there's no more death, there's life. And the divine curse from Genesis will be replaced by divine blessing. 22, 1 through 3, then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, which you weren't allowed to have up until this point, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, 
no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forevermore. So there will be no sea, but there will certainly be a river. And there will be no sun, but there will certainly be light that emanates from God, as he is all the light we need. The divine curse from Genesis is replaced by the divine blessing of the tree of life, giving its fruit when you need it, in the moment you need it, never leaving you unfulfilled. So it's a city of good times, and it's a city of God. Look at 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In 21.11, it says this. Well, let's try to get into this a little more easy. Look at 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels and the gates names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed and on the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 tribes uh, were the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Because anyone think back to 2009, or 10 maybe, when we studied Exodus? Does this sound familiar at all? It goes on to say in 2126, and its gates will never be shut. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only for those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. A big cubic city with particular measurements nothing unholy do what the tabernacle this is a picture this is supposed to be an illustration that reminds you of the holy of holies so rather so what was the holy of holies in the old testament who went there high priest when did when, when would he do that once a year Ugh. yes maybe yeah, that, that like, yeah, I'm so glad that everyone knew that. That is good. And so, who didn't go in there? Everybody else. So here, that most holy place, the holy of holies, is now what? Accessible? And what is it? It is where we live. There is no lack of access. It's complete and total access. It's the most holy place, the cube-shaped heavenly city. So your heavenly city in which you will dwell will be cube-shaped, in case you're wondering, to which the cube-shaped most holy place merely pointed will fulfill God's promises to dwell with his people. But his people will not enter only once a year through a priest. We live there forever in God's presence through the Lamb. In 22.5, it says, all right, I just read that. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp, sun, and light, for they will reign forever more. This is the climax of all creation. We will see his face. Remember the ones who were unrighteous, who don't want to see his face. They'd rather the boulders crush their heads so that they wouldn't have to endure such agony. But for the ones who long for our Lord, we will see that which we long for. This is so encouraging. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. 
And it just explains that the whole point of sharing the gospel isn't just so people get saved, isn't just so people understand their sin, isn't just so churches grow and the kingdom of God moves forward on earth. The, the, the end game of all that is God. Like, like we can evangelize for days and days and never get to the point of you should deeply desire to be with God and to see his face because that is the climax of all that is happening here. Finally and preeminently, the seeing of God will be restored to humanity. If you ever get tired of believing without seeing, does anyone get tired of that? I do. Oh, I love believing and not seeing. That's my favorite part of my faith. No, it's not. It's frustrating because you want to see. And faith is walking by, not by sight. So, finally and preeminently, the seeing of God will be restored to humanity. If you ever get tired of believing without seeing, this verse gives the hope and the promise that one day we will see God. One day you won't have to have faith in that sense. Kind of weird thought. Because you'll have sight. I, don't, I can't wrap my head around that. I said it, it's there, I don't even know. Finally, it's the city of God's people. Is the last part. In 17.5 it says, And on her forehead was written name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So apparently there's this other city known as a whore and a murderer. And so that's this other city that is compared to the good city, or really better contrasted with the good city. In 8.2 it says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then it says in 19.7, we see this, there's a, a, a shift. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It's like introduction of a bride who's not a whore and a murderer. Y'all hear that? Introduction of the bride who's not a whore and who's not a murderer, who's not Babylon. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And in 21.2, it says... And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So it's a city of good times, it's a city of God, and it's a city of God's people. The defiant city falls, and a wedding is announced. Babylon falls, the adulterous murderers fall, and a wedding is announced in the, in the following moment. The Bible's wedding and marriage imagery, which emphasizes exclusivity and intimacy, between God and his people is fulfilled. So if you're married or you're hoping to be married, there's a lot of imagery in scripture that, that indicates exclusivity and intimacy between only you and your spouse. And all of that exists for this moment. For this moment, when that exclusivity and intimacy that it, in your marriage is but a shadow of what will be between God and his bride is fulfilled in this moment. So here's the conclusion. We don't spend our lives worrying. We don't spend our lives full of anxiety. We spend our lives waiting. Waiting with great anticipation of what is certain to come. The future is full. The future is bright. The future should be encouraging to you in whatever moment you find yourself. Because it's a future with God. So we're not afraid of the future. Some of us are afraid of the future. We don't know what's going to happen, and it freaks us out because we're control freaks, and we want to know what's going to happen. 
Don't do that because the future is certain and it is good and it is full and it is bright because it's a future with God. At the end of Revelation, Jesus promises that he's coming soon at the end of this, this vision. Jesus promises that he's coming soon and John responds with a great closure to our city Twenty-two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, "Surely, I am coming soon." And John's response: "Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all." Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. What a crazy privilege to get to study Revelation tonight. What what an incredible thing that John, in his exile, because he would not submit to Emperor Domitian and call him worthy that we would learn so much more through the vision that he had about who is infinitely and exclusively worthy. Lord, we anticipate the throne. We anticipate all these beasts and these eyes and these wings and these horns. We anticipate the bowls. We anticipate the judgment knowing that it is right and good. We anticipate the wedding supper. Lord, how incredibly blessed we are to know what's in store and to not have to be full of fear. Lord, I pray that this would be a special encouragement to everyone who's here tonight. I pray that it would be um, something that that gives them motivation to continue, to persevere, to run the race, to 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 have endurance, to, to, to press on. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.